You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. And welcome to Radiotherapy on 3RRR, your weekly dose of all things medical and psychological. I'm Dr Autonomy and we have got the full compliment this morning with Dr Malice, child psychiatrist, Lolly Doc, emergency room physician and Miss Medic, our resident GP. Let me tell you what we're going to be talking about today. So the first thing we're going to be talking about is quite appropriate, I think, for Sunday morning, lying in bed, vague recollections of what you got up to in the early hours. Of course, I'm not talking about my current life. I'm talking about years and years ago. Um, We're talking about halitosis, also called bad breath this morning. Lolly Doc is going to fill us in on all the ins and outs. Um, And as I say this, I sit here thinking I actually didn't brush my teeth this morning. But anyway, we'll get to that later. Poor person who uses my mic next. As well as halitosis, we're going to be talking about psychotherapy in the UK because apparently its popularity is increasing. So Dr Malice is going to tell us all about that and uh, what it means for us in Australia as well. And as well as that, we're going to be talking topical news stories from the week, one of which is about Vegemite, but I will say no more and I will let you imagine what the medical implications of Vegemite might be. So go brush your teeth, then grab a cup of coffee. Doctor, doctor, give me the news, I got a bad case of loving you. Good morning, team. Dr. Malice, hello. Hello. Now, you know that feeling when you find a, an old friend has disclosed a great secret? <laughs> and, mm. and here, one of, one of our members here, Kent, has just disclosed he's a Richmond fan. Now, that may just go over the head of most people, but this afternoon there's a, a match called Hawthorne-Richmond. And here is this Richmond fan who doesn't know that Rewalt, one of their star forwards, is out with a, an injured eye from a poke from a friend. And he got it. Sounds like a great friend. It was in practice, so it was accident. Well, one assumes accidentally. You never know with these <laughs> players. You know, they just want, they're so prized to get into the team. But that's the match coming up this afternoon. I can't so wait. He's not the a, first person that's been poked by a friend and ended with an injury. <laughs> Right into it, Lolly Doc. It's bringing the tone overall. There down. we go. That's there all. it is. Bam. <laughs> Good morning. How are you, Lolly? I'm dandy. I feel great. Dandy. I've got, I've got, yeah, I've got more up my sleeve. I can't wait. Yeah, I've got a fear of German sausages. They're the worst. That's my kind of humour. Yeah. Yep. There we go. Miss Medic, how are you? I'm good. I feel like I'm kind of not contributing a lot today. I, uh, You're raising the tone, raising the well, tone. Well, that's, maybe that's what I'll take on board. Yeah. I'll just bring, I'll just dig us out of the hole that Lolly Dog <laughs> digs us into. It's an important and necessary role. Yes. Yeah. I'll, I can do it. It usually <laughs> takes two of you because they're big holes. <laughs> they are. Can you help me, Dr. Autonomy? Uh, I can. Let's just completely change the topic. Ask me how I am and how my <laughs> yeah, week has yeah, been. You, you, you oh, yeah. a, no one ever asks me. How are you, Dr. Autonomy? You had a this very important why, event, is, life event. Can I just say, this is probably why psychotherapy is on the rise. You, people just want to talk about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> 
ask me, ask me. <laughs> ask me how I am. No, please tell. Like, how's your week been, Dr. Autonomy? My week. Okay, that's enough. We're not sure. <laughs> My week has been, I'll just, I'll just face you, Miss Medic, because you're giving me attentive eyes. Oh, thanks, Lolly. <laughs> Uh, I've had one very intense week because my two-year-old toddler fell off a chair and fractured his leg, which, of course, at the time I didn't know. I just knew that he was inconsolable. So we had our first ride in an ambulance and our first experience at... Actually, it's not our first experience at the emergency room at the Royal Children's, but we'll leave that for another day. Uh, and luckily he's okay. He's got a cast on his leg um, almost up to his hip and he has been wowing us with his resilience, thank goodness. Um, you know, I say to him in the morning, is your leg sore? And he says, no, leg happy. <laughs> um, but my goodness, what an ordeal it was on the day. And I have to say, you know, the the ambulance paramedics and the staff at the Royal Children's just absolutely blew me away and you know for them we were probably just one of many many people that they saw in their day but for us you know those two or three people that we had so much contact with were just phenomenal and you know changed the day around for us and were so um so central to our positive in the end experience there so thank you to all of them and uh how lucky we ended up feeling that we are so close to the children's and that we have all of those uh supports around Mm. yeah that's a it's a really difficult experience to go through being a a parent uh with a child that's had an injury Mm. Um, and you know you're obviously very worried and i think um it's great that you got the care that you needed but it's funny because in that moment you do sort of think, because I was on my own with him um, <laughs> and I've said to a few friends, you know, obviously I felt like the worst mother in the world for a lot of the day but I was reflecting on it later and thinking I think it's a good thing that it had that it happened with me because had it happened when he was with anyone else, I don't think I ever would have <laughs> forgiven them. <you> know? <laughs> so if it had to happen with someone, at least it happened with me uh, and I've forgiven myself now. But um, in the moment it's really hard to make that call about, is this worth calling an ambulance for or am I overreacting, you know? Uh, it, you know, is this one of those events or am I being neurotic? It's it's actually really difficult. And I, I think in the moment one of the things that came to mind for me was the conversation that we had had on air quite a few weeks back where we were talking about being mothers and health professionals and and the difficulty in making that call sometimes and being objective. And, you know, I remember very clearly Dr Anthea Rhodes saying, you know, if the worst thing that ever happens is you call the ambulance and you end up at the hospital and they say everything's fine, that's not a bad outcome. You know, no one's going to think less of you if that's a good outcome. And I, so I, I did sort of take that approach and, and thought, you know, my gut reaction is this is not his normal reaction and I think I need to call an ambulance and... Yeah, it was the right thing to do when they were all remarkable. But I think, you know, when in doubt, call is is the kind of take home, isn't it? Yeah. I think if you feel like it's a... Because, look, just to provide the flip side, he would have still been okay had you... If he was calm, Mm. you could have got him in the car and seen a GP. So there's other sort of avenues you could have gone down Mm. as well just to provide the notion that not every... um, 
you know, you don't have to just go to the children's with every injury, um, that there are other health services available to you. But in the setting that if he was so uncomfortable and you're by yourself and you couldn't get him in a car seat and safely get him seen, then it was very appropriate to use the avenue of mm. the of um, the ambulance service. Or you could have just have been a better parent in the first <laughs> place and have provided appropriate supervision to your child. Yeah, I wasn't in the room at the time, so that probably would have stopped the injury. If I had been, I, but I, you know, the, yeah, and, yeah, I know you're being a little bit facetious there. I'm but being a lot facetious. Yeah. There, yeah. It's, and it just shows that you can't, like with toddlers, you can't be everywhere at once. And that this is a common injury, this type of fracture, which is a tibial fracture, a spiral fracture of the tibia. Mm. Um, and they it called it actually, a toddler fracture. Yeah, so it doesn't yeah. actually involve children falling from a great height. It's normally an awkward fall, so onto a rotated foot that causes this type of injury. Um, yeah, this was just a chair tipping back and he obviously landed awkwardly. In a weird way, mm. yeah. So, look, these these things happen. and But it does make you feel, you know, obviously that you think of how could I have prevented it? Well, this is kind of one of those things that really is just unlucky and they the good news is that they heal very well mm. um, and... You know, he's going to be absolutely fine. Yeah. When I mentioned this in the green room just before the show, Lolly Doc, you said something, and I can't quite tell if you were joking or not, that in the past, such injuries were never assumed to be accidental. Yeah, so we, so as, as Miss Medic said, tibial spiral fractures of the tibia are very low energy. Uh, injuries. So they can occur with very minimal trauma. But a long, not that long ago, actually, we used to consider any long bone fracture in a, in a child. Um, so for example, the tibia um, or the, the arm bones, the humerus, for example, we would consider them non-accidental injuries until proven otherwise. So there was a lot of misconception about what caused these types of fractures. So it's, I'm kind of glad that we've moved past that, that phase. Mm. Yes, that that was in in an era that was the backlash against the silence and the ignorance about what was come come to be known as the batter's baby syndrome. And Kempe, a paediatrician, was the first to actually look at such x-rays and find that not only were these long bones fractured, but these children and toddlers and infants had repairs of many, many other fractures. Mm. And therefore, it didn't quite add up that why was this child or infant presenting yet again? And there were various stories that were created to make it sound reasonable. You know, low impact, high impact, falling out of pushes with their uh, foot caught in it like a ski injury, a spiral fracture. Yet these stories were not convincing in the light of x-rays that showed multiple fractures, sometimes also with repaired fractures of the skull. And so that was the era of the backlash against the uh, abuse of children. Now, fortunately, we've got both clearly in the medical training. You have to have an index of suspicion, but you do not start accusing reasonable accidents as as something else. Mm. So there's a long history to this condition. Um, I'm going to wrap that up there. Thanks, guys, for the debrief and for letting me... um you know, get some support from you all. I feel lots better now. <laughs> uh, and 
Terry, the nurse practitioner who works at the Royal Children's Hospital, if you are listening, thank you very much. My son is still talking about you and is still saying, see Terry again? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So over to... To which you reply, hopefully not. (laughs) (laughs) Never. (laughs) But this is the sort of life event that actually creates a seed in a child's mind for a choice of career. And so (laughs) this may be where he becomes a a nurse, a a doctor, an ambulance driver or something of the kind. Apparently he does want to work in an ambulance when he grows up, Dr Malice. There you go. That might have something to do with his daddy as well. (laughs) Could possibly have something to do with that. And and more importantly, sets him up as a a person who's likely to have a good relationship with healthcare practitioners in the future because he's had a good experience. Yeah, Mm. that's very true. Yeah. Uh, enough about me. <laughs> that, I, I feel that that was like kind of like making up for lost time about you. Like we had that was fifteen oh, minutes of you. That was <laughs> so. Don't expect so any don't expect time it for the for rest until next year, two thousand and eighteen. Your quota. That's has been just filled. the perfect summary of parenthood, isn't it? Like you speak about your child and the tribulations, trials and tribulations for fifteen minutes, and everyone's like, "So that's your time." <laughs> Are you doing anything else other than parents? <laughs> Not a lot, actually. Not a lot. Um, Lolly Doc, tell me about... <laughs> we're, we're having a, uh, a funny instance with the microphone in the studio, which just doesn't translate. That can get treated, you know. I see people about that all it's the time. It's very normal, Lolly. <laughs> it is. My microphone's de-chew-messing as we speak. Can we talk about Vegemite? Tell me. So um, I, I love these stories where um, <laughs> where uh, simple, basic foodstuffs get applied to a big outcome. Uh, so, for example, this week we had Victoria University uh, releasing publication, or well, at least the media caught on to a publication about the relationship between um, yeast spreads, so promite, Vegemite, and Marmite, and uh, improved outcomes for depression and anxiety. So the Whoa. the kind of, I guess, premise to this particular study was that uh, depression and anxiety is very common. About 2 million Australians every year will experience some form on the spectrum of depression and anxiety. And what's the kind of simple intervention that can be provided in a cheap manner uh, which is every day. And so people know that uh, vitamin B is a has some correlation between improved outcomes for neurological illnesses and also central nervous system issues. So, for example, people who've got organic causes of depression. And so what these researchers did was they applied an online survey last year and looked at, tried to get a cohort of people who had regular... Um, yeast extract spreads in their diet every day and then had a control group which didn't and they applied a a depression anxiety score um, to those people prospectively to see if there was a difference in outcome. So although it's not the most rigorous of scientific method in terms of randomised controlled trials, it did have some merit in terms of separating a potential variable that could improve things. So people who had Marmite or Vegemite or Promite in their diet were more likely to um, have improved depression anxiety scores. (laughs) Why are you even mentoring Promite and Marmite? I mean... (laughs) Do they even need to be... No, my my ex-mother-in-law loves Promite. 
Loves it. There is one person in Australia who likes Promite. <laughs> and then the Marmite is just what the English people that are around, the backpackers that are out here. Well, there's a lot of them too. Yeah, there are. Yeah. Mm. I married one. Did you? Yeah. Well, there you go. Do you, does he like Marmite? No. Right. Of so that's a bad example. He wasn't allowed to like Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so now clearly we need to do a study comparing Vegemite, Promite and Marmite for their effects. Yes, like, yes, randomised. Mm. So you could have a spread that tasted like Vegemite but didn't have any vitamin B in mm. it, perhaps, mm. or yeast in it of mm. any sort. They used to use it for rations in the army in World War One. That's Makes how Vegemite sense. used to be, like, became a commercial success because it used to be given to the soldiers as part of their ration pack. <laughs> World War One. Wow. I think it used to have vitamin B12 in it, but I don't think it does anymore. No. And so I wonder about, yeah, that would have been a good source of B12 for back in the day of being at war. You imagine they would have very quickly become B12 deficient. Yep. Hmm. It does raise that interesting, um, you know, area of diet and mental health, though, which is a fascinating area and one I would actually love to get an expert in on to talk about on a future segment because there's lots being found out. Yeah, and then we think about there's thiamine in Vegemite and thiamine deficiency, which is something we see often as a consequence of alcoholism as well, can lead to some brain changes for alcoholics. So we always replace thiamine. But if they were having Vegemite on toast the next day, they would Mm. probably be getting the thiamine they needed. Mm. Or uh, thiamine-infused beer. Yeah. Or alcohol. Mm. Is it B1? Is B1 thiamine? I can't remember. No, I can't remember either. I think it's B1. Anyway. Call us and tell us. Yeah. (laughs) Or don't. (laughs) (laughs) My lingering memory when I think about Vegemite is of a kid with our cat at home and I used to put a bit on my finger because the cat loved Vegemite because it's so salty and the cat would like lick my little finger with its rough tongue. That's what I think of when I think of Vegemite. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have been talking all about toddler fractures of the tibia and Vegemite for improving your mood and we're going to turn now to a segment with Dr Malice about apparently the rise of interest and popularity of psychotherapy in the UK. Well, what a segue from the 15 minutes of dedicated me time uh, (laughs) because really that's what this is all about, that in our culture here in triple R, but also on a grand scale in England, there's an amazing experiment underway. And just like the 15 minutes seemed really intense, and it was, imagine this being done with a million people a year, giving them time to talk, open access for free with a professional. For free? For free. Isn't this like... This would be utopia coming to all psychotherapy practitioners and users. Now, about 12 years ago, it occurred to a professor at Oxford, a professor of psychology and an economist who's also a member of the House of Lords, wouldn't it be a great saving experience if we could treat people who don't turn up to work for ailments other than physical ailments? The catchphrase was... If you've got a broken, 
as we just talked about, a broken leg, you have immediate prompt attention. The question was, what happens when you have a broken soul? Hmm. Now, interesting that this is from the English-speaking countryside talking about broken souls and British empiricism and, you know, show me the facts and the material. They're talking about broken souls. Anyway, 12 years ago, these couple came up with this idea, put in a proposal and got 40 million dollar budget to train up 1,000 professional psychologists, social workers, psychology graduates and others to form a new service and that was spread throughout the English countryside and now it is uh, nine years on the budget now is 500 million dollars and it's likely to double to one billion in the next few years. Why would any country invest such money in a free, open access uh, talking service? And the answer is sheer economy. It saves much more hmm. to invest this. Now, the question that comes up, what is it that they're providing? Like, is this rocket science? And it comes back to what Lollipop will probably be so fay with, it's triage. And in an emergency setting, triage from the military services came in as a way of decision-making that's very rapid on what to do with seriously injured people, soldiers. On the one hand, there were those who were tragically destined to die no matter what you do. No intervention would save them. On the other hand, there were those who were destined to recover without intervention, so you didn't have to do anything. And the triage, the third part, was those you assess as seriously injured who could recover with treatment and intervention, but who wouldn't recover without it. That's where you invest the money. Now, that's the principle behind this open access telephone line as initial screening, which now, as I say, has a million callers a year. That, just think of that. It, it, that's what is called a real-life experiment. This is not in the lab where you recruit 20 or 30 patients with a Pacific disorder, double control trial and see what the outcome is. This is, as it were, a million single cases and see how many of them in the triage system go on to need further treatment, and then the recovery process. And clearly, it's financially a viable option. Now, the question is, this is in its, as it were, piloting stage. We use the term piloting for experiments which are in the very early phase where you find the little glitches and therefore you don't invest so much money in a major project, you refine the little glitches. Now, the little glitches here are that it's only providing one form of therapy, that is cognitive behaviour therapy. There are many others. The most co competing alternative would be the interpersonal talk therapies, which deal more with relationships. And then the intrapersonal, which is the much more akin to the traditional psychoanalytic, what goes on in people's minds. But at the moment, it's in this pilot phase of cognitive behaviour therapy. Question is, what sort of conditions does it actually address? So if you wake up on a Monday morning and, as the case report in the newspaper said, you're in your 30s and you're a graphic designer and you're really at the top of your game and the birth of your second child has created more stress, you've always been a bit on the anxious side, a bit nervy, a little bit wary of crowds, 
But after the stress of the birth of your second child, you find that you wake up and you just dread going outside and you can't actually bring yourself to turn up to work. You're not actually malingering, but you don't know what the matter with you is. This is not who you used to be and it's not certainly who you want to be. You've got something. What do you do? Now, if, as we now say, this is the symptom of a broken soul, much like a toddler who's in pain, you realise it's not them, you say, there's something wrong, we should attend to it. The key word is promptly. You mm-hmm. do not sit on it. At, at most, as we discussed with a, 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 a child, an infant, you may wait if they can sleep overnight, but you attend to it in the first 12, 24 hours. Promptness is the key. So here, let's call this person David, rings up this service and there's a trained professional who asks questions and gives them not 15 minutes but however much time they need to sort out the triage. Are you someone who's really unwell and you need to go to an emergency psychiatric department? Are you just having an off Monday, the so-called Monday-itis, and, okay, take the day off and see how you are tomorrow, you'd get well anyway? Or are you really in the majority in the middle, that without treatment you'll go to the really serious end and possibly and probably with correct precision treatment? So promptness was the first P, precision is the second. With precision assessment diagnosis and treatment, you'll go into the group that goes back to work free of your symptom. However, this middle group then needs intervention in the triage decision making. And this is where currently this experiment in England is at with the $500 million budget on a free service. And I emphasise this, this is conceptually something we could not have imagined 10 years ago, any government investing in something without... Yes? Uh, I was just thinking, so you're on radiotherapy and we're talking about um, a free mental health triage service online in the UK that sounds like it's been a huge success. Um, you know, I was thinking actually, as you were talking, Dr. Mellis, I was sitting here thinking about the first time I ever decided that I needed to see a psychologist many years ago. And I can still remember very vividly the process um, and the time frame between sort of thinking, gee, maybe it would be helpful to see someone and then having the courage to actually find a number, decide who and where to call and then to actually pick up the phone and call that number and kind of say, I think I might need some support. It was incredibly challenging and... I know I I think about that moment and I think imagine if there was a number that was you know immediately available you knew that it was there um and you could just pick up the phone and know that you would talk to someone who was an expert and could help you navigate that process and sort of find out where to go next that that I think is the overlooked critical moment uh that you've just mentioned Dr Autonomy the personal moment of courage to declare I'm not okay. Most of us would tend to, and and let's put this in context, this is the UK, England, one of the most stoic societies. (laughs) In fact, it is well known as the country which has the stiff upper lip approach to problems. You do not quiver, you do not cry, you do not complain. 
So the question must come around, as you yourself said, it, it musters up an enormous amount of resistance to admit that there's an issue and then an even greater amount of courage to actually make a contact. Now, how does a whole national movement like this come underway? Now, one of the suggestions is that this uh, week has been the 20th anniversary of Princess Diana's tragic death. Now, you may say, well, that's very interesting. It was tragic. But what's that got to do with anything 20 years later, and especially with a free health service of free talk? Well, if you follow the Herald Sun newspaper this week, every day they've had a magazine on the Diana legacy. And the Diana legacy is really what are we living with 20 years after? And we're living with her two sons, Prince Harry and Prince... William. William and married to? Kate Middleton. And first child's name is? George. Yay! <laughs> Malice. Right, just call it. Okay. Now, what's the relevance of all this? That these two sons are actually talking about the legacy, not just of having a princess as a mother, but that it was never talked about. Her death was kept silent. That is stiff upper lip and the British nation all the way back from Dunkirk, World War II and ever since then. That is what Britain is known for. Here are two royals, young men, now one married with two children and they're starting to talk about the impact of the grief 20 years later. Now, one of the things that I was trained in in child psychotherapy many years ago was the so-called royal romance, that all children grow up saying, oh, I've been misplaced in the sort of family I'm with mummy and daddy. I actually belong in a castle <laughs> with a prince, a princess, and my mummy should be the queen and the king. Instead, I got these duds, but anyway, there we are. And one of the things psychotherapists should be aware of is this natural inclination in fairy stories, you know, Cinderella and so on, that is natural and normal to have the family romance embedded in our infancy and childhood. Now, that was part of the dynamic of the outpouring of the national and international grief. This was a glorious princess, Diana, and she had the most tragic death with two young sons. And it was unspeakable in that generation by those people. So the family romance and the royal romance was shattered but unspeakable. Now the two boys who are young men are actually leading the voice of speaking about grief, sharing it, and the downside of keeping it private. Mm. So there's a whole identity of a nation that is gradually transforming from stoic to speaking. It's a very brave thing, isn't it? Because I know Diana's death obviously was such a public event and uh, a public scenario, yet if you actually think for a moment about two young boys losing their mother and how private and personal that must be, it must take a huge amount of courage to speak even as men about that sadness and grief and, and what that's been like. I mean, I think because it happened on such a public stage, we can sometimes forget that that was still such an intimate, personal grief for them. And, and has remained so. And Prince William actually said it's only since he's become a father of his own children now 
that he realised that that speaking about certain experiences is an essential for mental health. And I guess that's the fundamental thing. It's simply that not speaking about it, not acknowledging this mental anguish just doesn't work. And if you think of the monarchy as being, you know, going through times of risk, of being overturned and, um, you know, Australia's had the question of becoming a republic, it's like they, they... Part of it is they've needed to change. The way that they were doing things does not work anymore. So maybe in part it's sort of kind of self-serving that they try and catch up and get up to speed. And then the UK as a whole acknowledging that this simple stiff upper lip, it doesn't work and it comes at a price and the cost is, you know, loss of productivity and all those things that we know when people are not well and not able to work. Um, the uh, One other thing I just wanted to add was... Look, I think we have we've got a way to go here in Australia in terms of having the availability of mental health services that we need. Um, but if you're out there and you're feeling a bit at a loss and you think you need some help, what we do have available to you right now is Lifeline. So the number is one three double one one four. And I would encourage people to acknowledge that GPs do so much mental health work, and that is. Um, that is something that's not spoken about a lot, but lots of us are, you know, very welcoming to see patients for the purposes of discussing their mental health, providing some help ourselves, and also then finding a psychologist. You don't need to know what psychologist you're going to see. Your GP can help you with that. So, mm. you know, we are there. We um, are ready to talk whenever you're ready. And I think every week... I see at least one patient, maybe maybe more than that, who are talking about their mental health for the very first time mm-hmm. um, and it can come out just as a flood and the relief that I see just from them saying it out loud um, is really palpable and really powerful. So use the services we do have. Yes, mm. we don't have, an, you know, we, we're still fall short, but we can help. Interestingly, and and taking that a little bit further, Miss Medic, Medicare actually supports that approach and you can get free psychological consultations if you have a mental health plan, correct? Mm, Incorrect. Incorrect. So if you are, unfortunately, uh, there is is some ability to access free health, uh, mental health through um, some of the, the primary health networks if you have a mental health care plan, but for the majority of us, it's uh, with a mental health care plan, you get 10 rebateable sessions. Rebate. Okay. So they get about, and you might be able to help me with this, I think they get about $85 back, Be- Dr. Autonomy. Between about 84 80 and sort of $124 back per session, depending on what sort of psychologist you see. Yeah, so and you so might have some out-of-pocket expense. You might have some, depending on what the psychologist charges. And, you know, many people would say 10 sessions per calendar year is not nearly enough but it's a phenomenal start you know 10 hours with with a professional and it's 10 sessions per calendar year if you're eligible so you know when January rolls around again each year you are potentially eligible for another 10 sessions if you are still struggling with mental health issues yeah and that mental health care plan is done with your GP I would say 98% of the clients that I see come through a mental health care plan yeah yeah I'm just looking at the Trying to do. I'm not a health economist, but I'm just going through the numbers here. Um, so, um, 
depression costs the Australian economy approximately $12.6 billion a year and 6 million working days lost. So even if you were to intervene for free at a cost of a billion dollars, that would be if you could get 10% of that recouped, um, you would make your money back. Seems like a no-brainer, It does it? seem like a no-brainer, doesn't it? Mm. But isn't it interesting that our society has to turn to economy rather than to recognise actual human suffering as the need? It has to be translated first into what percentage saving will we recoup in order to provide the service, not that there's another human being, a fellow citizen who is in despair and unable to get out of bed or with agoraphobia, unable to get out of the house, claustrophobic, agoraphobic. It has to be in this materialistic translation. Hence the power of this uh, couple who initiated this, if you've got a broken soul... What an extraordinary expression in this culture. And one's an economist. I mean, it's just mind-boggling <laughs> to use language like that. Impressive stuff by the UK. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And just as a little follow-up to the conversation we've been having about psychotherapy in the UK and the way that the Australian system works, um, we had a, a call um, during those announcements um, from someone to say, you know, it is possible to find different services depending on um, what you're earning and, you know, what your financial situation is. So when you talk to your GP, for example, you know, if financial stress is a big factor in your life, they will um, do their best to refer you to someone where there's not going to be a particularly big gap. Um, in terms of amount to pay over and above the rebate. So, again, it's that same kind of key message, isn't it? You know, talk to your GP and there's lots of possibilities out there and they can help you navigate the system. Absolutely, yeah. There is for people with financial hardship that have healthcare card, um, certain things going on, uh, they can definitely access the free sessions. Mm. So without an out-of-pocket expense, but that's obviously you need to meet certain criteria. Mm. It's easy if you discuss that with your GP. Oh, I know we're trying to move on, but mm. would it be really interesting if a an employer set up a scheme where they paid the gap or paid for your counselling sessions in order to get you back to work quicker? Do it much like work cover or work safe does for physical injuries? It do, it can, do they? It, does, it can happen. So if there is a psychological component to someone's um, which there often is in work cover situations, particularly if it's been going on for some time, then part of that is the uh, some funding for psychology as well. Hmm. Can I just mention that comes under the work cover of and the most common issue is PTSD uh, with post-traumatic stress disorder. The difficulty there is to determine the percentage of that condition due to the injury and how much was pre-existing in the person, which of course gets into a, a very muddy area. Right. And there's also employee assistance programs that a lot of, uh, well, I don't know what the percentage is, but that employers have where they will pay a certain number of sessions for their employees to see a psychologist or a counsellor. So, And this just highlights the enormity of the English experiment that it's free. Yeah. It's, it's government realises that this is not on the onus of an individual uh, employer-employee relation. This is for the nation's good. And as your own statistics are, we pay something like 1% of the GDP 
for just depression, whereas this uh, takes in depression, anxiety, and many other conditions. I mean, it's just it's beautiful. Yeah. Mm. Lolly Doc, your microphone is, has just been floating away know, from you all I'm just, morning. I'm just going to hold it here and look really awkward, but no one can see me, so that's fine. Have you got bad breath? I do. <laughs> no, I don't. But um, what's the relationship between bad breath and mental health? Well, in fact, there's a strong relationship between bad breath and depression and obsessive compulsive disorder. So the correlation between the two. But that's not my segue. Is that right? There is an incredibly strong association between the two. Why that is, we can talk about. I don't know what comes, no. what comes first. Yeah. Mm. Uh, who knows the history of Listerine? I'm, gonna, I'm looking at Miss Medic because Miss Medic was pretty onto the royal trivia. <laughs> like you're all over that, but you don't <laughs> know your Listerine true. history, not do true. you? Oh, Different magazines. Yeah, it doesn't sort of come up as much on my Insta feed. <laughs> no, right. Okay. So Listerine was a 19th century. Uh, surgical, um, uh, sorry, 1900s surgical disinfectant, um, disinfectant ah, right? And, and someone decided they'd have a little swill. So, no, so, and it was also a cure for gonorrhea as well, which I think oh. was very, very interesting. Um, mm. I assume not taken orally, but, you know, what would I know? And someone decided that they would actually um, uh, decrease, what am I trying to say? Decrease the concentration. What's that word called? Dilute. dilute. Thank you. Dilute. That's the word I'm looking for. Dilute. Exactly yeah. right. Um, two points, Miss Medic. Thank you. Um, so they, in, in the 1900s, what they did was um, they used it for that. And then in, in 1920, they diluted it and sold it as a mouthwash for bad breath. So they actually created a bad breath industry that didn't exist ah, beforehand. So smart. very, very smart. So their their revenue was about $150,000 a year back then. And it back increased then? Back in the 1920s? Yeah, yeah. So it was pretty good for surgical disinfectants. But then it became $8.5 million a year just on mouthwash, which is pretty impressive. Anyway, that's Listerine. So that's my segue. What and about those little strips? You know those little the, things? The strips. Strips on it? You know yeah. those little things that kind of dissolve that come in that little nifty packet? I don't have that information to hand. <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> okay. Medic. Ah. So bad breath is bad sorry. breath is incredibly common, I know, right? <laughs> um, approximately ten percent of Australians experience bad breath. And when we talk about bad breath, what <laughs> we're actually doing that study. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Um, we, we're actually talking about genuine bad breath, so you can actually measure bad breath. I'll get to that in okay. a second. Um, this is not the people's perception of bad breath, so when you kind of, you know, sniff your own breath and go, oh, does it smell bad? That's not bad breath. Bad breath is, is consistent uh, pathological scent coming from the mouth, and it's not always caused by the mouth, but is most commonly caused from problems in the mouth. So by far and away, the most common cause of bad breath is oral hygiene, in particular the tongue, the teeth, and the gingiva. So those, the gums, basically. The gingiva. The gingiva. Yeah. Haven't heard of them called the gingiva. Yeah. Haven't you? Have no, you heard, heard of gingivitis? Yeah. yeah. So inflammation of the gingiva. Gingiva. Yeah. Mm. Anyway. So um, bad breath is caused by bacteria breaking, they're sulfur-producing bacteria, so they break down uh, amino acids that uh, are in your mouth and release sulphur, which is what the bad breath is. And there's three major sulphurs. I'm not going to test you on those. Do you know? Name no, me yourself. No, 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 I didn't think so. All right. So um, the, the aim of treating bad breath is to reduce those sulphur-producing bacteria. And we do that by brushing our teeth, by flossing, and also by tongue brushing. 
Now, tongue brushing is a bit of a weird one. There's a not the evidence is not particularly strong for tongue brushing, but there is an association between what we call white tongue and bad breath. So dentists will often look at your tongue to see whether you've got a white coating on your tongue. There's a bit of there's a bit of examination here in the studio. <laughs> Any any Just white sticking out yeah. tongues? Then. Yep, Kent, no, Kent, okay. Kent's, Kent. Kent's clear. Kent's looking good. Um, so most of the bacteria is found in between the teeth and in the gingival pockets. So in the in those little recesses deep between your lips and your your gums, particularly at the back. So if you can picture that, so the aim would be to use an interdental or little little things you can get from the supermarket that you stick in between your teeth. They're like little floss things. Um, like to get rid of the bacteria. Floss picks. Things. Floss picks, oh, right. yeah. Um, or flossing. Point? You do get another point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. What's the prize? Pre-Listerine. Listerine and a cure for gonorrhea. <laughs> um, and... The, so so that's, a, that's the main thing and that's really common and easy to do and you probably don't need to see a dentist or a doctor for those particular problems. Just, just brush better your teeth home, and just floss. Brush, correct, particularly after, after meals. But they are associated with other illnesses and these, this is where um, the little 10%'s worth taking note of. So we know that um, stomach issues, uh, nasal and um, back of throat issues can cause bad breath, in particular reflux disease. So if you've got bad reflux, indigestion, heartburn, that kind of thing, that can lead to bad breath and needs treatment of your reflux rather than treatment of bad breath. If you've got sinus problems, particularly chronic sinusitis, so a drip at the back of your nose, nose uh, back of your mouth, sorry, of goopy stuff from your nose, mm, delicious Sunday morning Vegemite. I always talk about post-nasal drip. I spend a lot do of you? time talking about that. Do you? Yeah, not just, socially. Just just like, yeah. <laughs> Which At is work. why you have very few friends, I imagine. <laughs> this is the link between <laughs> that depression and OCD. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then there's rarer causes that um, produce scents from the mouth and they include things like diabetes um, and liver disease. So you can get a, a scent of ammonia from liver disease. You can get a scent of um, keto acids or ketones from diabetes and they can produce scents of, of malodour from the mouth as well. And so they're certainly worth, if you've tried good oral hygiene and you feel that you've still got bad breath or halitosis as it's called, then... Um, it's definitely worth getting checked out because there are alternative causes other than mouth-related. Dr Mallis. Going down the pathways of where these bad breath things can come from, uh, being with that we are in Australia and, you know, we've got our Nobel Prize winners of the Halobacter uh, pylori, is that a bacteria that, uh, which is a cause of many of the gastric ulcers, is that a gas-producing bacteria that you can smell or not? No, it's not. So, so ref interestingly, um, reflux itself doesn't cause bad breath, but um, deterioration of the mucosal lining of the esophagus mm. and the stomach, which Helicobacter can do, can, do, yes. um, can cause an imbalance in bacteria that do produce sulphur. Oh. So you can get it from, from a secondary from reflux rather than from the reflux itself. So most mm. people with reflux don't have bad breath. Which is good to know, um, but some people will because they've got an imbalance, M much like thrush is an imbalance between good and bad bacteria. Mm -hmm. What about tonsilliths? What about what? Tonsillar stones or tonsilliths? So interestingly, so so I have done my research for this mysmetic. So the the ear, nose, and throat I literature. I also talk about these all the time. Do you right? <laughs> 
the ear, nose and throat literature says that... Because um, it used to be thought that chronic tonsillitis, mm. for example, was a significant cause of bad breath, and that's probably been debunked. So no longer do we think that chronic tonsil issues cause um, bad breath. Um, so it's probably unrelated. Probably. But the stones? The stones themselves probably don't either. Don't. Okay, that's interesting. So in the crypts, your tonsils are kind of glandular tissue that have these little crypts, so little like indentations, and you can get little um, sort of calcifications that form in there, so called a tonsillar stone. Um, And, yeah, I have patients that get these quite a lot and they learn how to sort of milk their tonsils in order to get the stones out. No way. Yes, yes way. So and I'm you can sure sell them on eBay for $150. <laughs> that bit's not true. Um, so, yeah, it, it, is a, it is a problem. Often there's an underlying issue that sort of is driving it with a bit of post-nasal drip again. Something like that going on. I can't um, believe you didn't mention post-nasal drip once over breakfast this morning. Oh, we just didn't have time. Yeah. <laughs> we would have got We were to too it. busy listening to you talk about <gasps> your child and parenting. That's all about me. As always. <laughs> um, one of the other important things that I just want to mention is just with, in terms of bad breath is that the interplay between saliva and bacteria in the mouth is, is very strong. So um, good production of saliva reduces sulphur-producing bacterial load. So things that reduce saliva are bad for bad breath. So there's lots of medications that people are on. So have a chat to your pharmacist or GP about medications that may be decreasing your saliva production and that can also cause bad breath too. Now, just a, a brief mention, what are the two most common things that we talk about? Is that in the classification of bad breath? That's smoke, cigarette smoke and mm-hmm. alcohol. Are they classified as bad breath or there's something else? So smoking reduces saliva production and also starves the usual um, cells that produce uh, saliva of their oxygen supply and so they often die so you get a decrease in saliva. Um, Smoking also causes oral cancers which can cause bad breath too so that's all bad and alcohol is a potent saliva decreaser too. So a dry mouth post-alcohol is very common. Everyone's had the dries when they wake up. Not everyone, but <laughs> just you. the people in this room, I'm sure, have had the, the dry mouth. Do you floss? Also, I, do, I, I use the interdental. So I, here we go, disclosure here, I get really, I've got beautiful teeth, so I don't have any, any cavities or any um, little... Snap. But I do have the bad gingivitis. The just have to take your word for it. I mean, we could all be just sitting here to a gummy lolly dog <laughs> sitting right. there with no anyway, teeth. I, I, I can vouch for it because I've seen his teeth in the glass that, with the water and they are beautiful. They are perfect. <laughs> and, they thank, really and thank are. you to that 85-year-old woman who donated me her teeth. That was fantastic. No, so my gingiva are not good. I do have, I get chronic gingivitis, which is genetic. So my mother has that and her mother had that as well. And so I do actually floss very regularly to decrease that bacterial load. Well, for the the genetic condition, we can actually have another segment in a month's time about the uh, discoveries about mutant gene killers. Mm. Just a Stay like tuned. For the next time. Mm. We're out of time, guys. It's gone so fast. I think, you know, when you talk about yourself in such an intense way, the time flies. And it's such a fascinating topic as well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, we will catch you again uh, 
next month at this particular team. But next Sunday, Radiotherapy will be bringing you the first Radiothon show because Radiothon will have started. It goes from the 11th to the 20th of August. So start ramping up for that. It's a very exciting time. Get your subscribing dollars ready. Um, Thank you, Dr Malice. Thanks, Lolly Doc. Thanks, Miss Medic. Thank you to Kent for pushing the buttons seamlessly yet again. And we will see you next Sunday for Radiothon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.